Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Bulls and George Osborne. So I had a very destabilising moment this week, 4am, taxi through central London on the way to Good Morning Britain, looking at my briefs, and it said we were discussing the launch of the Osborne podcast. And I thought, but he's already doing a podcast with me. How come he's launching a second one? What's going on? This was Ozzy Osborne, I can reassure you, and and his wife Sharon. Um, and it's a, you know, when I was at school, he was a big rock star, and everyone used to tease me, calling me Ozzy Osborne. And then, thankfully, he disappeared into obscurity. I thought I'd never hear from him again. <laughs> and he came back with uh, at home with the Osbournes, and now with the podcast. But you know, the great thing about podcasts, you can listen to both the Osborne podcasts. You can, and uh, I think they'll probably be discussing different subjects to us so we'll probably be okay also we had a meeting earlier this week discussing our podcast and you were in in the treasury doing the meeting i thought what's going on he's got another job well you know they had to send for an old hand (laughs) i was there to meet with the officials at the department of culture media and sport in my role as chair of the british museum but i remember as part of one of my efficiency drives we said to dcms they couldn't have their own independent building <laughs> they had to move into the treasury uh, so i was asking rather sheepishly whether they enjoy being there and i was assured they'd like their building but the most exciting thing that i read this week ed is that you are going to be conducting the bbc singers at christmas which by the way explains why you were very keen that the Director General didn't cut them earlier well, this year. BBC Singers, valued cultural institution, have been saved by the BBC, which is um, great and a relief. And it's actually not Christmas, it's next week. I'm going to be doing the podcast next week from Norwich because we'll be rehearsing, performing at Norwich Cathedral and then St Martin the Fields on Friday Come night. Come on, give us, give us a little preview. Yeah, I know you can't conduct... On a podcast. On a podcast, but you let us into the secrets of the great master. Conducting's really hard, and I'm doing this piece called A Grace for 10 Downing Street, which Herbert Howells composed for Ed Heath and performed in, I think, 1972 in Downing Street in the presence of Her Majesty the Queen. And to get the words fitted in, the words are written by Robert Armstrong, who was the Cabinet Secretary, and the time is a nightmare. So it goes, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, Two, three, four. For those who oh, can't actually gosh. see this, he's, he's waving his hand around like he knows what he's doing. We've got to get on with our podcast. First of all, we've got to talk about the Exocet missile launched from the Home Office overnight in the Times newspaper. A very controversial article from Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, basically accusing the police of being biased in their policing as we look forward to the demonstration this weekend. And we're going to discuss that. And then we're going to turn our attention to the autumn statement. Now, it's not for a couple of weeks, but we know, because we've been there, that this is the week when the Prime Minister and the Chancellor will be making the big decisions behind the scenes. 
What are the options for Jeremy Hunt? And is Jeremy Hunt the right chancellor for Rishi Sunak at the moment? Is he a safe pair of hands or is he the political chancellor that maybe Sunak needs at a moment like this? And then with the Polish centrist party winning in their elections a couple of weeks ago and Nadine Doris launching her book saying that it was a populist plot against Boris Johnson that brought him down. We're going to ask, is populism now in retreat around the world? But we're going to have to start with this article from the Home Secretary. Just to recap, there's a demonstration planned for Saturday, which is Armistice Day, not Remembrance Sunday, but Saturday, when the minute silence will be at 11 o'clock on the 11th of the 11th. The um, police, the Metropolitan Police, earlier in the week, said that they were asking the demonstrators not to go ahead. They then said they weren't going to ban the marches. They didn't think they had the intelligence or the threats to, um, to make that decision. The government has pushed back, not just the Home Secretary, but the Prime Minister as well, saying that these marches are the wrong thing to happen. But then we had this article overnight in The Times in which the Home Secretary uses language I've never seen before from Home Secretary. She says, this is me quoting from The Times, Unfortunately, there's a perception that senior police officers play favourites when it comes to protesters. During Covid, why was it that lockdown objectors were given no quarter by public order police, yet Black Lives Matters demonstrators were enabled, allowed to break rules and even greeted with officers taking the knee. Right-wing nationalist protesters who engage in aggression are rightly met with a stern response, yet pro-Palestinian mobs displaying almost identical behaviour are largely ignored. Amazing. Well, it's amazing. And also, Number 10 is refusing to say that they signed off on this article. I think you have to separate two issues here. There's first of all the march. And I think there are a lot of people in Britain very uneasy about this march happening on Armistice Day. It's a very provocative day to hold the march. And very uneasy with some of the scenes they've seen on some of these previous marches. There'll be a lot of sympathy for the suffering of civilians in Gaza. But some of the elements of these marches are pretty unacceptable. And you get people wearing, for example, stickers of the murderers who killed those people in Israel a few weeks ago. And to be fair, the police have arrested people on these demonstrations. So there's an unease, which I think the Conservative government understands, is tapping into. It's why Rishi Sunak called in the police chief. And it would be a mistake for the Labour Party not to understand that unease. On the other hand, that is not the same as the second issue, which is should, therefore, the Home Secretary wade into the argument and accuse the police directly in print under her own name of being biased or applying double standards. And that seems to me quite calculated move by her to stir things up, attract a lot of attention to herself and her role in this and create quite a problem for 10 Downing Street. I think you're right. Look, there's no doubt the Metropolitan Police would prefer the demonstration didn't go ahead. That's why they said what they said. There will be many people across the left of politics as well as the right who would prefer this wasn't happening on Armistice Day. We know that's what's been going on. But that's not the same as banning a march, stopping people demonstrating. And the police have decided that would be the wrong thing to do. I was thinking about um, demonstrations and the way in which they impact upon politics. And uh, and you're right to say that this is something different from Sweller Braveman. We've both been in government when there were demonstrations against the government. Think of the Iraq war demonstrations or the anti-austerity marches. And that is a normal part of politics. There's also times, actually, where for governments, demonstrations can be quite helpful. They can actually open up space for you to move into. If you think about um, 
the early 2000s, when we were pushing as a government for debt relief around the world, we used to say to Jubilee 2000, or then the people who were doing the um, Make Poverty History campaign, it's quite helpful if you come and surround the Treasury with bells and whistles and sort of push us to do more, because we could then ring our counterparts in France, Germany, Japan, America, and say, look, there's a real public demand for action on debt relief. Can't we do more than we're doing? So sometimes they can be helpful. But the difference here is using a demonstration to play politics and divide within a country. If you think back to a couple of years ago, the way in which Donald Trump used the Black Lives Matters demonstrations to say to American voters, don't let these people run our country, they're not the same as you, to play that culture ward card, that is what Suella Braveman is doing here. She's trying to you, talk you... about Palestinian mobs. You know, don't let these people, these leftists, run our country, and then accusing the police of but I being think there is in a hot to, to leftist mobs. It's amazing. So I, I think that's why I say you have to draw a distinction between being able to tap into a majority concern sometimes that minority groups get special treatment or minority groups um, you know, are doing things that you are not comfortable with. And I think that's where the conservative government But saying, we're never comfortable with demonstrations against us. That's what having a demonstration is. And they're often a minority group. And that's what democracies allow. Yes, but I, I think these some of these pro-Palestinian marches, there's a, there's a view in the country. Why are they being allowed to take place? You know, why aren't the police properly policing them? Now, as it happens, I think the police are trying to properly police them and they are making arrests. And the Home Secretary in this situation is actually becoming a commentator when she should be acting as the Home Secretary. There's a thing, Linton Crosby, the Tory strategist, used to say to David Cameron and me, don't be Connie the commentator. That was the Australian phrase he used. He says, you're not the commentator on this situation, you're the Prime Minister, you're the Chancellor. In this case, Suella Braverman's the Home Secretary. She's got real decisions to make about how to support the police in their policing of demonstrations. She's got powers to override the police and ban demonstrations. She should be exuding all the authority of her office rather than being yet another newspaper commentator who's in some senses demonstrating her powerlessness. You know, if she's the Home Secretary, why shouldn't she do something about it rather than go to a newspaper and write She's an also article? making the police's job so much harder. The Met will have people this week in synagogues, in mosques, talking to people. They clearly didn't want the demonstrations to go ahead, but they've got a duty to police them in a way which prevents violence. And it's almost as though Suella Braverman is sort of, you know, kind of encouraging confrontation at a time when she ought to be bringing people together. Well, Yvette Cooper, Shadow Home Secretary and close to you, Ed, she tweeted last night that what uh, Bramman was doing was highly irresponsible and a dangerous attempt to undermine respect for the police. And I agree with Yvette on that. But maybe from Braverman's point of view, this is serving a different purpose, which is it's it's demonstrating that she is the person prepared to speak out, you know, on on the issues that the prime minister's not prepared to speak out on, that she's she's pushing collective responsibility to the absolute limit. She's daring Sunak to fire her. She's basically burnishing her credentials to be the Tory leader after the general election in a defeat where probably the Conservative Party will come to the mistaken analysis that they lost because they weren't right-wing enough. It's very unusual to see this kind of challenge to a prime minister from such a senior office. And I know that Rishi Sunak has himself expressed his concerns about these marches this week. The big fight he had clearly with her earlier in the week was about 
the homelessness issue, where she briefed there was going to be action to find charities who gave tents to homeless people. That didn't end up being in the King's speech. And in fact, they then didn't publish the bill in which that would have been, because clearly that didn't have collective agreement from the Prime Minister. But even on this issue of um, the policing of um, the Saturday demonstrations, surely this is a challenge from Suella Braverman to the Prime Minister, that she's trying to go further than Number 10 would be willing to go, hence them saying that they didn't sign off the article. Yes, but I think she's also daring them to do something about it because she'll know that she's tapping into a Tory view that the police are biased in these demonstrations. Is that a Tory voter view or is well, that a Tory member? I think there's a difference here. So I think where she's making a mistake is that the fundamental to the view of many Conservatives is that the police should be respected and supported and they do a difficult job. So support for the police is a very strong Tory sentiment. I also That's think... That's most people in our country, uh, away from the extremes of, of left course, or right. Most people support the police. Right. And they can see it's a very difficult situation. I also think instinctively the sort of Tory view on this, and remember there are lots of Conservatives who go around saying we should be defending free speech and university campuses are cancelling the views of people they don't agree with. So it's a bit awkward to be the free speech champions who want to ban a, a march in a free country. I think the kind of instinctive Tory response amongst the sort of pragmatic centre of the Tory party is we should allow these demonstrations to take place. But really, the 11th of November, I think maybe they should be pushed to have another day. And that would be a kind of classic Tory solution. Have the march, just don't have it that day. What Braverman's doing is I think she thinks she's tapping into... Tory sentiment in this space. But I think attacking the police is the wrong target because most Conservatives will say, you're the Home Secretary, you should be standing behind the police, not undermining them. So it's lunchtime now. Downing Street have just said they've got full confidence in Sweller Braveman. Always a dangerous thing for Downing Street to say. What would you do if you were Rishi Sunak? Well, I know that Rishi Sunak has on a couple of occasions come very close to getting rid of Sweller Braveman in reshuffles uh, in the last year. And he hasn't done so. There's an interesting question. The kind of classic political logic now would say, you can't fire her, you'll have a big Tory rebellion, she's too powerful, you're too weak at the moment to pull that off. But there's another way of looking at it, which is you're 20 points behind the polls, your personal ratings aren't great. How can you demonstrate strength? How can you demonstrate a kind of gutsy approach? How can you be the change candidate that you say you want to be? And if he fired her, there would be a big, it would be a big row, there'd be a lot of fireworks. But ultimately, prime ministers tend to win those encounters because the Home Secretary would suddenly become the backbencher and she would quickly lose her purchase. Look, think of, you know, Priti Patel was Home Secretary. She went to the backbenches. Everyone said, oh my God, that's going to cause trouble. And this is not no disrespect to Priti, but she's not the as powerful a voice on the backbenches as she was as Home Secretary. So, you know, Sunak could kind of call Braverman's bluff and assert authority, demonstrate he's a change candidate, and, and then throw the challenge to Keir Starmer and say, I've shown I'm tough. I've imposed discipline on my front bench. When are you going to impose discipline on your front bench who are openly defying the line that you've set on Israel and Gaza? I mean, that's the kind of you know, if you've got to, if you're in Sunak's position, you've got to keep thinking. What are the manoeuvres I can pull off that are going to change the political dynamic at the moment? And that dynamic at the moment is working against him. But we know Sunak's revealed preference, which is to delay and wait. He 
dithered for ages over Gavin Williamson. He did the same thing with Dominic Raab, actually. And so if he's going to do it, I think he won't, because I think he won't feel strong enough. But if he does, and, you know, if he's taken your advice overnight, he should do it quickly. What he shouldn't do is wait and wait while the pressure grows and while the backlash intensifies, because there's a danger that by that point he looks like he's forced into it rather than making his own decision. Yeah, and the, the power to hire, but also the power to fire, is the real demonstration of prime ministerial power. And the irony here, isn't it? I mean, on this march, there are going to be quite a few banners potentially against Keir Starmer because he's the one who's been having the biggest problems in his party over the Israel-Gaza issue, the biggest, you know, there have been obviously these Labour MPs, including a Labour frontbencher, Imran Hussein, who resigned this week mm. over Starmer's position on support for Israel. Look, the hard politics of this within Labour will be people around Keir Starmer saying, thank goodness we made the speech we made a week ago, which said we are not supporting the a ceasefire. We're in favour of humanitarian pauses, but not the ceasefire. Because if not, if Keir Starmer had bowed to that pressure, and this weekend, these demonstrations on Armistice Day were demonstrations that it looked like Labour was supporting, that would have been much, much more politically difficult for the swing voter in the country. Whereas, in, as you say, there'll be more placards which are protesting against Keir Starmer this weekend than there will against Rishi Sunak or or Suella Braverman, at least until the last 24 hours. There may be now some Suella Braverman posters being being hastily printed as we speak. And uh, it's also enabled Keir Starmer and David Lammy, alongside Joe Biden, the American president, the US Secretary of State Blinken, to start being more critical of Israel, more worried about what's happening in Gaza, more heavy in their demand for the humanitarian pause. So I think over the last week, although... You've had, as you said, one frontbencher, a campaign group member of parliament um, from the the far left. Just explain, the campaign group are the lefty nutters. Am I allowed to say that? The campaign group is bigger than it was under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, but they are the sort of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, John McDonnell supporters. And he was one of those hard left people who was in the front bench, but no more. But in fact... Would would Starmer be saying good riddance in private? I think he would be... um, one less person who's going to resign on me in government. Well, look, um, he appointed him to that job. He's a Bradford East MP. He must have thought he was the kind of person who could help provide balance. He's gone. There will be no tears being shed for him in the Shadow Cabinet or the Leader's Office. And the Shadow Cabinet discipline has held at a time when I think rightly, and in the way we've been urging him to do for the last three weeks, Keir Starmer has showed a little bit more emotion and political guile in the way he's talked about these issues. So I actually think after a troubled three weeks for Keir Starmer, the last week has been much better for him on this Israel-Gaza issue. And they will be looking at the mess Suella Braveman has put the Prime Minister in and thinking they can go out and say she's wrong and support the police. And I think if you're Labour, supporting the police when the Conservatives are attacking the police is quite a good place to be. Yes, I would certainly agree with that. And actually, the G7 have issued a statement on Israel-Gaza, which is also gives quite a lot of cover to Starmer's position and obviously is also Sunak's position as part of the G7. I should I, I want to just say one thing. I thought that one of the most emotive things this week were the mothers who came here, whose children have been taken hostage in Israel, came just to remind us that behind all of this politics and all of this manoeuvring and the like, there are some really tragic 
human stories unfolding and uh, some really desperate situations there, it's just including terrible. for those poor mothers who've, uh, whose children are, have been kidnapped. Thousands of Palestinian Hamas. children, the hostages still being held after four weeks, children, mums, grandparents, all caught in the politics of Hamas and Netanyahu, and it's just terrible. So after decades of Queen speeches, we've just had the first King's speech of our lifetime, a chance for the government to relaunch itself. And when the political editor of The Sun calls it a damp squib, probably you've not quite succeeded. On to the autumn statement, a second chance for Rishi Sunak? Well, this King's speech was definitely not as good as the Colin Firth movie. Uh, and, you know, I think we talked about this before. If if you set yourself up as the prime minister who's going to upend 30 years of political consensus and be the radical change, you then have to follow through. You have to deliver. And the King's speech was the moment for Sunak to show, I've got a properly radical agenda. I'm the person really leaning into the country's problems. And although there were individual elements of it that I would have supported and indeed are quite future thinking, like preparing the world for self-driving cars, the whole thing didn't really sizzle. And as a result, the Conservative Party, who's you know sitting there waiting for this sort of Hail Mary moment, to use an American football analogy, when they throw the ball and just hope something's going to come of it, you know, waiting for a, a moment when their fortunes are going to change, have, have moved on to the autumn statement, which is in a couple of weeks' time, on the 22nd of November. And first of all, there's an interesting choice here that there is an autumn statement I remember when Philip Hammond took over from me as Chancellor, and I'm a big fan of Philip's, and Philip had worked very closely with me in opposition as my deputy. And I sat there, it was the only budget I actually listened to as a backbench MP, because I had been fired as Chancellor, but I hadn't yet left Parliament. And I remember Philip saying, we're not going to have these two big statements that Osborne used to have and Gordon Brown used to have, the budget and the autumn statement. We're just going to have the budget and uh, we only need one event a year. And I remember that the, the Treasury civil servants would always come to me and say, Chancellor, can't we just have one big event this year? And I'd say, and whose interest is that? It might be in your interest, the Treasury civil servants, that we don't have to put together two of these big statements each year. But for a Chancellor, it's a massive opportunity at two points in the political calendar to control the agenda. And for number 10, by the way, if they're working closely with the Chancellor to do so. I thought it was a bit of a misstep from Rachel Reeves, interestingly, as Shadow Chancellor, to say recently she'd only have a one of Eddie And I, I would say to her, you don't want to be giving up the opportunity that Hunt is going to have in a couple of weeks' time with the autumn statement. And it's not only political, it's also technical. Politically, having two big moments where you can address the nation directly on things which can affect their own lives, their tax rate, their petrol prices immediately in a much more direct way than you can ever do in a King's speech. I mean, those are kind of great moments to set out your stall and to change the weather. But it's also the case, if you only do one budget statement a year, over the past 12 months, things could have changed a lot in terms of the tax revenues coming in, what's happening to public spending or the economy. If you only update every year your changes are necessarily more big and jarring and hard to manage. Whereas, in fact, if you do twice a year, if you do the autumn statement in the autumn and you need to get some bad news out, you get the bad news out then. And then three months later, when it comes to the budget, then you can then try and move on to 
the sunnier uplands. And so there are advantages in Although doing... Although I remember, you know, in 2009, I think the kind of final nail in Labour's chances of staying in office came with Alistair Darling's autumn statement because he had to spell out the borrowing cost of the of the financial crisis. And there was just a sort of jaw-dropping... It didn't matter what he said once he after he'd read out those borrowing numbers... That set the battleground for the coming general election. And, yeah, but the, but, you know, I, yeah, but I the counter the, argument is that you might have won the general election two weeks later. By the time we had another budget, and then we had the general election, well, by then things were starting to get a bit better, and and you didn't get a majority. So maybe actually that makes my point that getting the bad I've news out thought, early moves things this, on. I've always thought this argument. I used to say to people who said to me, well, you didn't win the general election. I said, well, we are actually having the conversation in number 11 Downing Street. So I think we did. Fair enough. But, but I take your point that, uh, you know, maybe this is a moment for Hunt to get the, about the bad news, but the pressure is on him to pull a rabbit out of the hat, to change the Tory political fortunes. We're going to talk about specifically the tax cut options that he's got next week because the old States is not for two weeks' time. But what we're going to talk about today is the fact that all of the really big decisions will be being made right now because the Chancellor will have received now from the Office for Budget Responsibility the forecast for the economy and the forecast for the public finances. He'll know what they are. Remember, there's a sort of sinking feeling when you know you've got bad news. I had that in 2012 and you've got to, you know, you know you've, you're going to have to unveil this in a couple of weeks' time and you're trying to work out what's the best way to do it. Also, you might figures that surprise on the upside. And there's quite a lot of talk now that actually growth has been better than the OBR forecast and the finances might be better. So you've got those things. And then you're locked in conversation with your civil servants and with the prime minister, who's really the only other person in the room at this point, about what you're going to do with your autumn statement. So this is the critical week. By next week, it's frankly too late. That's right. And in fact, the OBR sets out their timetable. They say they do five forecasts. They did three forecasts for the Treasury in October. On Tuesday... they Five iterations of the... Five form. iterations. So it changes every time. On Tuesday, they gave the Treasury the first forecast, which has in it the budget measures, the things the autumn statement measures Jeremy Hunt's told them he's going to do. So crucially, so everyone understands... Hunt will have already told the OBR what he's intending to have in the autumn statement. He won't have told any other member of the cabinet That's other right. than the prime minister. And then the final forecast comes from the OBR next Friday in a week's time. So between now and then, they can look at the individual measures, decide to change some, have a bigger change These in tax. These like tax cuts, spending spend- rises whatever, anything that affects the raw numbers of how much money is coming in and out of the Treasury. So let's look at three things right now that they will be focusing on. The first one is the the fiscal rules, the rules that they've set out, which they say they're going to meet. And Jeremy Hunt has said he's going to have the ratio of um, debt to GDP falling by the end of the next parliament, by 2028. This is a really kind of delicate one for him. And that's why the forecast from the OBR will be quite um, important. If that debt-GDP ratio is falling sharply over the coming years, that's really good news for Rachel Reeves, because she, as the Labour shadow has said, she wants it falling too. If it's falling quite a lot, that allows her to say, well, I'm going to use some of that falling gap for my 28 billion. Yeah, debt will be falling, but not as fast. Exactly. And therefore, she can spend public investment for the green economy. Whereas if Jeremy Hunt 
can increase public investment over the next week. Or cut taxes. Or cut taxes. Something which allows the debt-GDP ratio to be only just falling. He can remove all of Rachel Reeves' room for manoeuvre in the autumn statement and then say to her, well, are you going to borrow more and have debt rising for your green plan or is it all on hold? Labour can so make I think no this difference. Is the, this is a very good example of a question we'll come back to in a few minutes, which is, are you a political chancellor or are you a chancellor basically interested in your reputation as the steward of the British economy who got it right? Because if Hunt's thinking, I'm going to lose the election anyway, the Tories are going to be out, I want to be the person who didn't blow the finances. Then you could have debt falling quite sharply. So I left the economy with debt falling sharply. The political chancellor says, no, 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 that's going to give a big opportunity to my Labour opponents to spend that money. And so I'm going to adjust things so that debt is only just falling. It feels very technical, this point, but I promise you, this is one of the key foundations of any budget or any autumn statement. And they've got five days to work out exactly how to calibrate this so that the OBR forecast makes it as hard as possible for Rachel And you've got to watch out, Ed, that it doesn't tick up. You can, you can think you finally tuned it and then the final OBR forecast, oh my God, debt's not falling and then it's too late. I can so remember that, that, that's the first thing. There's in debt. the early 2010s, when you were trying to show the deficit was falling and it was really close, you did a whole load of dodgy manoeuvres at the last minute to I make it happen. I, I was sensible, I'm just long-term decisions in for the, the best interests of the country. We'll come back to that some other time. Second one, we know that inflation being higher has brought in a lot more tax revenue as well as... That's because people are being paid more. That's right. So tax is a percentage of what you're being paid. So the actual cash coming into the Treasury has gone up. There's more pounds coming into the Treasury than they were expecting because of inflation. And also, the higher interest rates means that the debt interest burden, the debt interest you have to pay for the higher national debt is going to require more public spending for Jeremy Hunt. But I think people are saying at the moment that actually the tax positive is going to outweigh the debt interest burden negative, and therefore he will have some money, some room for manoeuvre. But high inflation means what for things like NHS spending? Well, the problem is that the high inflation means what were already, in real terms, very tight public spending plans for the Home Office, for education, for the NHS over the next five years are even tighter. And Jeremy Hunt may not care about that if he's a political chancellor in 25, 26, 27, because they'll think I'm not going to be there. But right now, the squeeze in the coming year from higher inflation on NHS spending because of the fact that pay's gone up and the cost of drugs has gone up could mean the NHS is under real pressure. So if Jeremy Hunt is thinking to himself, what do I need to do in this autumn statement? If he wants to have a chance of winning the election, I think he's going to have to put more money right now into the National Health Service and maybe into other public services too. Well, isn't this a a, a time for cakeism, to use the phrase that Boris Johnson used to use when he said he wanted his cake and eat it? which is what Hunt can do is pile money into the NHS this year so that the Tories are throwing as much cash as possible at the NHS in the coming 12 months to get the waiting list down, but then have very tight public spending plans for the years afterwards back to austerity and know that Labour can't divert from those plans. They can't say, oh, well, we'd spend more because it enables the Conservatives to say, all right, fine, you vote Labour, you're going to get higher taxes. Again, the political chancellor, probably the sensible thing to do, by the way, for the country is to have a you know, multi-year plan, 
give the money to the NHS in a, at a speed at which they could absorb it rather than just throw it to them all at once. But the political chancellor view would be stuff the NHS with gold this year, take it away from public services in the years ahead because you've left the shadow chancellor with a very, very hard situation. And then the third issue, which is I think the hardest one for him to do anything about, is the tax burden, which is the overall amount of tax that we collect in our economy as a percentage of um, all the income we earn. And that is rising. It's actually, in this parliament, had the fastest rise in a parliament of any parliament since the Second World War, partly because of repairing the COVID damage. But at the moment, the tax burden is projected to rise all the way through the next parliament instead. And even though the um, GDP figures have been a bit better for the government, so the economy is a bit bigger, but it's the direction which matters. And the tax burden is rising. Yeah, it's become a huge issue, this. Uh, for the right wing, for the conservative press, which is it's supposed to be a conservative government and you're giving us the highest taxes in the whole post-war period, higher than when Gordon Brown was chancellor or higher than when Dennis Healy was chancellor. And I don't think Hunt can afford to publish figures that show an ever-rising tax burden. I don't think he will like the front page of the Daily Mail after the autumn statement, which would be highest tax burden in our history. And he'll do everything he can to avoid that. But in those meetings which are now happening, they've got five or six days to sort this out before it's all locked down in the OBR forecast. And I think the Prime Minister in those bilateral meetings will be saying, you've got to get the tax burden falling. And Jeremy Hunt will be saying, I don't think I can. I don't think I, I, don't think I, can, I, I can do it. So I used to have these bilaterals with David Cameron. We had an added complication, which was, of course, we had to bring in the Liberal Democrats. And so we didn't just have a sort of straightforward me and David having the conversation, Nick Clegg had to be involved all along. But the relationship between me and David was very close. And I would not play the game that, in fact, some of the Treasury officials used to say I should play, which is don't tell the Prime Minister all the numbers, have a, you know, a fake version of what's called the scorecard, which is the, the sort of one piece of paper which the whole budget is summed up on. Uh, and don't share fake numbers with Downing Street. Bring them into the conversation. It's what I used to say because David supports me and he's trying to back me up on what I'm trying to do. Fundamentally, it was a very strong relationship. It wasn't we did, quite like, the same in the Blair Brown. We did have, I'll tell you one good, the biggest sort of policy disagreement I had with David over the budget was I wanted to reduce the 50% rate of income tax that Labour had bequeathed us. In fact, it was one of the very. It was only operational for about a month of the Labour government between April and May, two thousand and ten. So most of the Labour period in office, the tax rate had been forty percent. I wanted to cut it from fifty percent to forty percent, which was a bold manoeuvre and a difficult manoeuvre. But I thought it would send a message that Britain was open for business. But I wanted to pay for it with two additional bands of council tax for very expensive houses, for £5 million houses and £10 million houses. Kind of a mansion tax. Right. So kind of a mansion tax. And amazingly, I persuaded Nick Clegg. I said, Nick, would you sign up to a cut in income tax, which would be like for the highest paid, but we'll get the highest paid with big houses to pay for it. So you'll get your mansion tax. I'll get my cut in the top rate of income tax. And it's a big, bold, reforming move. And then David said, no. He said, cutting from 50 to 40 is too much. It's the wrong time to do such a big change. You can go to 45%. And you've got to pay for it in a way other than a mansion tax or new bands of council tax. And uh, that's what led us into 
things like the pasty tax. But we will come back to that perhaps in next week's episode. But that was the nature of the bilateral. That, that, by the way, that wasn't a testy argument. That wasn't um, that wasn't us having a big row. That wasn't me storming out. That was just like an adult conversation about how to put together a budget and what were the economic and political risks of the various measures we could take. Maybe it wasn't quite as friendly as that in the Tony and Gordon years. I'm looking forward to discussing the Omnishambles budget, but the Blair-Brown relationship, the bilaterals, the truth was that they were um, very important, actually very kind of cooperative and interactive. We spent hours in them, particularly in these weeks, two weeks out from the budget or the autumn statement, sometimes three or four times a week, sometimes for an hour or two hours. Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, me and Jeremy Hayward as Tony's principal private secretary who was in the room. And we went through the whole detail of the budget. There was always this idea that um, Gordon Brown didn't tell Tony Blair what was in the budget. The truth was it was all thrashed out in these meetings. It's always dangerous as a chancellor to give the impression that you might have some back pocket of extra money to solve problems. Because, of course, the prime minister can get used to that and say, look, it'll be fine. Gordon, you'll sort it out. And it wasn't always possible to find the money to sort things out. I remember one particular moment in the 2002 budget, a few weeks before, in the Blatchwell meeting, we were going to raise taxes for the National Health Service. It had been a huge year-long process with the Wandless report. And uh, we had alighted upon an increase in national insurance employees and employers to pay for this huge boost in NHS spending, totally supported by Tony Blair as well as Gordon Brown. In fact, he had kind of um, prefigured it on the Frost programme a few weeks before, much to Gordon's annoyance. Yeah, he basically announced the budget, which was European levels of health spending. You stole my fucking budget was the the thing Gordon Brown was supposed to have said, although whether he ever would have said that, actually he would have said that. But the question was, what was the tax rise? And the thing about Tony Blair was, like every prime minister, he wanted the money didn't really want the tax rise. And we said, look, we've looked at this in detail and VAT, much less popular, more unfair, income tax, much more complicated um, way of doing it and much less popular. National insurance is the um, the only option. And Tony says in the Blatchery, he says, guys, there must be a better way. Because you're talking here about you know, big money, billions and billions and billions. And he turns to Jeremy Hayward and says, Jeremy said, there must be a better way. And Jeremy said, well, I... I have been thinking about this Prime Minister and I have got an alternative proposal. And me and Gordon thought, you know, way hey, what's this alternative proposal Jeremy's going to come up with? Brilliant creative civil servant. Jeremy said, I think what we should do is levy full VAT on all new greenfield houses which people buy. So if you buy a new house, you'll pay VAT and that will raise the money. And there was this moment in the room and then Tony Blair, who'd gone slightly white, turned to Gordon Brown and said, OK, so we're raising national insurance. And that was it. <laughs> and that it's was actually one of the, decided. It, it's one of the great sadnesses, I think, is that Rishi Sunak's national insurance rise, which he pushed through as chancellor in the teeth of opposition from the Labour Party and elements of the Conservatives, was reversed. And, you know, that opportunity, which the, there aren't many, to try and increase the tax-raising powers of the Treasury in a way that's not too offensive was missed and, uh, and has boxed in not just the Conservatives but also the Labour opposition. But the, look, the interesting thing about that was that Rishi Sunak, having proposed it, then um, allowed it to be withdrawn. If that had stayed on the table... Well, he'd, it, was, it had been introduced, legislated for. Liz Truss abolishes it and he doesn't feel as the new Prime Minister that it's the one thing he doesn't reverse of the Truss era 
And the one thing Hunt doesn't reverse. And But it would have put Labour in a very, very yeah. difficult position because the fact is that this was money for the health service. Rachel Reeves had decided to set her stall against attacks on working people, although a national insurance rise for the NHS 20 years ago had been the most popular tax uh, rise a- ever. And if Rishi Sunak had stuck with his instinct to do this for the health service, then... Labour would have been in a position right now where they'd have had to have raised over £10 billion in tax simply to carry on with the same level of NHS yeah, or, spending. Or they probably would have had to concede they'll stick with the higher rate of national insurance. Well, they had no. dug themselves in a hard on this. I think, if I'm honest with you, on that one, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt let Rachel Reeves out of jail. So here's a question, Ed. I think people listening to this, you know, they'll have heard us talking about some big economic issues here about debt and tax burden and so on. But they'll also have heard us talking about the politics of this and the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. And I think sometimes people expect chancellors to be above politics. And it was often levelled at me that it's, perhaps I was being too political as Chancellor. And I would say the essence of politics is how much money you raise from people forcibly in the laws of the land through taxes and who gets that money? Is it the health service, the police, Does it go to old age people or younger people? This is the heart of democratic politics. Of course, the chancellor is a very political job. As people say there is talk in the Tory party that Sunak should replace Jeremy Hunt, that Jeremy Hunt's not political enough, that he's too focused on, you know, quotes, doing the right thing for him and his legacy as the guy who restored stability to the British economy after quasi quoting. And he's not playing the game of coming up with the things the Tories are going to need to win the election. So what's your sort of observation on that? Is, do you think Hunt is political enough? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think if you look back at the history, there are some chancellors who inherit very difficult circumstances and get a reputation for kind of sound finance and making the difficult decisions in a very unpolitical way and then they go on to lose the election. Roy and Jenkins in Roy the late Jenkins, 60s, famous example. Roy Jenkins. Labour blamed him for losing this 1970 general election. They did. And Alistair Darling, um, similarly, was a chancellor who presided over an election defeat after making some difficult decisions, but not being seen as the most political of chancellors in his style and his communication. That's because he told us all, well, on holiday in the Hebrides, that this was the worst crisis for 100 years. Look, it At was, the very point when his Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, was saying, don't worry, it's all under control. It was a big crisis and potentially the worst for 100 years. But the photograph of the black and rough sea when he was um, doing the photo call was probably a political error. I don't think a political chance would have done that photo call in quite that same way. It was, it was an image which hung around for quite a long time. Counter-argument, though, Dennis Healy, and Ken Clark, both very political chancellors, much more skilled in political communication. They still presided over election defeats in 79 and 1997. Do you think that Rishi Sunak thinks a change of chancellor would change his fortunes? That's the question. Because if not, then, you know, sticking with Jeremy Hunt's fine. So I think he probably will stick with Jeremy Hunt. Jeremy Hunt you know, was not actually chosen as Chancellor by Sunak initially. Of course, he was Liz Truss's second Chancellor in that very, very short premiership. And I think it's kind of hard to think of any any other example in history of a Chancellor who's been Chancellor under two different Prime Ministers. So (laughs) that's quite an achievement. But, you know... Dennis Healy. Wilson to Callaghan. All right, very good. Your your general knowledge is better than mine. But, But there he resigned through ill health rather than being ejected by the parliamentary party. So that is a difference. 
So I think if, if Rishi Sunak had a completely free hand and he had years ahead of him as prime minister and he was ahead in the polls, he would choose Claire Coutinho to be the Chancellor of Exchequer. So that would be the end of her career. <laughs> no, I mean, making kiss of death. No, no, really? No. No, I think in a circumstance... He, he probably he, likes her too much. No, she she is very smart, very bright, was his special advisor, was his PPS, and uh, now is in the cabinet, fast-rising an impressive star of the Tory body. But she's the sort of person you can take a risk on as Chancellor if you've got many years ahead of you and you want to show you're the big reforming change Prime Minister. If you're in a situation where you're coming to the tail end of the government, you've got a very hard election to win, you've got to grind out a victory against Labour on economic competence and security, you can't ditch the Chancellor. You've got the safe pair of hands, Jeremy Hunt, who's established a reputation for being not very political, doing what's required to restore the public finances. I don't think he can take that risk. Counter-argument, just to provoke you, you need a big communicator, a change maker, somebody who might change the weather, can't be low-key, can't be a rising star, got to be somebody who could do it right now for you, Michael Gove. Well... (laughs) Don't laugh. Answer the question. Well, Michael Michael is a very good friend of mine. And I have a theory of Michael Gove's career, which is that if he had supported Remain Mm. back in 2016 and David Mm. Cameron had survived, uh, uh, then actually um, Michael Gove might well have become either the Chancellor or the Foreign Secretary or would have had the big job, which actually, despite all the jobs in the Cabinet, has alluded him. But you're right, you're scratching old wounds. I think the, it comes back to something we've been talking about earlier in this podcast. Sunak presented himself at the party conference as the change prime minister, the person who was going to upend the political consensus. He has as his chance exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, who's been in and out of the cabinet for 13 years as a safe pair of hands, is not the change chancellor, is not the great political chancellor, but in fact is making the argument things are being restored to sanity under my on my watch. And there's that contradiction again. You can't set yourself up as the change Prime Minister and have the continuity Chancellor. If you have, however, the change Chancellor, the new young rising star who replaced Jeremy Hunt, then you're basically setting yourself up for an election where you can't present yourself as a safe pair of hands and the better the devil you know candidate. And uh, that, to my mind, goes to the heart of the strategic mess that the Conservative Party has got itself into at the moment. So will Jeremy Hunt be the political chancellor, the change chancellor? We'll discuss that next week as he finalises his autumn statement speech. Right now, we're going to come back and talk about Nadine Doyle's book and whether populism is in retreat. So one of the phrases that has entered the political lexicon in recent years is jump the shark. That's the moment when you do something that's so ridiculous that it kind of exposes the whole construct. And it comes from the moment when, in happy days, the Fonz on Wolfskis jumps over a shark. And maybe Nadine Doris... Is that where it comes (laughs) from? That's where it comes from. Uh, If you remember happy days, yeah. I remember happy days. He's he's water skiing along and there's a big great white shark and he manages to jump over it. And even, you know, at that point, even the kind of uh, ridiculous things the Fonz had been getting up to, everyone said that. Is too much. That, hey, no, so, is the jump the shark moment for the populists Nadine Doris's new book? Because she has written this long uh, diatribe about 
the conspiracy at the heart of the British state and the heart of the Conservative Party that apparently brought down Boris Johnson and other great leaders like Ian Duncan Smith. She thinks there's a group of people called the movement. I'm not making this up. I promise you this is what she's written. That is led by that shadowy, sinister figure we were just talking about, Michael Gove, and a whole load of other characters like Dominic Cummings and someone you probably haven't heard of called Dougie Smith. And these people have been running the country secretly for recent years. And of course, the D. Doris is basically playing into a theme of British politics and American politics in other countries over recent years, that there's an elite, there's an establishment, that they've been working against the interests of the people. There is some irony, I should say, that my friend Michael has been signaled out for this, as he was, of course, the person who used to say, you know, we don't trust experts anymore, and that there's a blob that's really running things. He used to call the establishment the blob in the education world, and we needed to drain the swamp. And, of course, a bit like the episode, jump to another of my favorite TV shows, a bit like the end of um, Scooby-Doo. We've pulled back the curtain. Nadine Doris has revealed that it's old man Michael Gove from the amusement arcade who's been running things all along. I know. Shaggy, Scooby and Thelma do their job. I've got to say, it's totally bonkers. Nadine Doris in the mail. It brings me no joy to expose the party I love, but the sinister ringleaders at the heart of the Tory machine do more damage than I ever could. Were you one of these sinister ringleaders? Well, bringing down Boris Johnson? I didn't think you were very private about it. <laughs> well, for a start, Boris Johnson is one of the people who brought down Ian Duncan Smith. If you want to get into the history of this, because he was one of the Tory MPs who voted to get rid of Ian Duncan Smith. So the thing doesn't add up. But what is, I think, interesting is that she you know, plays into this feeling that more mainstream politicians and, frankly, more credible politicians have been playing into in recent years – it was behind the Brexit referendum that was, of course, successful. It was behind Donald Trump's successful bid for the presidency. And I think what I find a bit worrying, and it's something you've alerted me to in one of these, one of our previous podcasts, the mainstream politicians in Britain today are still playing with this fire. So Rishi Sunak, when he says there's a failed political consensus for the last 30 years, he's basically trashing governments of all different colours who've made good efforts, whether you supported them or not, to try and improve schools and, and the like. He's suggesting there's a kind of elite. This is, by the way, from an ex-Goldman Sachs banker who was head boy of Winchester, who's secretly been running the country. It's the same trick, by the way, that Boris Johnson, ex-head boy of Eton, used to play. And at the same time, Keir Starmer, ex-director of public prosecutions, a more establishment man you couldn't imagine, uh, who's been railing against Westminster and the way business has always been done. I totally agree. And what is so frustrating, I mean, Boris Johnson wasn't um, brought down by dark forces. He was brought down because he failed. And the reality of populism, whether you look at Boris Johnson or Donald Trump, is it's easy to be a populist leader in opposition. But when you're governing, it's actually really hard. It's really hard to manage a pandemic when you've actually got to make difficult decisions. And that's what he he failed at. And I sort of feel with Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, they should be owning the fact that they are mainstream, serious figures. They don't need to play these the, the populist language. We saw it again from Keir Starmer this week. I thought it was a very good King speech. He totally exposed the Rishi Sunak, Swella Braverman uh, problem. But then he said this in the House of Commons. It's laughable 
they can't see Britain. That's the only possible conclusion. The walls of this place are too high. What does he mean? They can't see Britain. The walls of this place are too high. It's one thing to attack the Conservative government or Rishi Sunak. But when he says the walls of this place are too high, what he's saying is that the problem is is Westminster. He's saying that the problem is politicians. He's saying that the problem is Parliament. I mean, classic piece of populism. Who writes this stuff? I can't believe Keir Starmer's writing this stuff. Why does he want to play oh, an no, anti no, You're playing the blame the advisor. Who is the, you, you and I have both been political advisors, both written speeches for politicians. He chose ultimately, to say it. He chose yeah, to you've say got it. to ultimately, you know, the leader of the Labour Party has got to own his own. Drives me up the wall. Keir Starmer, if he's going to be the Prime Minister, is going to have to be telling people in one, two years' time. Trust the fact that we are making the right long-term decisions for Britain here in Parliament, and they may be difficult decisions. If the walls are too high for people in Parliament to see what's going on in the country, how is he going to explain why he's seeing what's going on in the country? Is he going to be the anti-Parliament, the anti-Westminster leader as well? It's very, very undermining of trust. So I think one of the themes of this podcast has been leaders not being true to themselves. And so Rishi Sunak, he's not the great change candidate. He's not upending 30 years of consensus. He's what well, he is, what he was actually at that AI summit last week, the techno-optimist who is excited about uh, the way the world is going and is the sensible, rational Tory leader after the Johnson years. And Keir Starmer is not a great populist leader who's going to sort of break down the walls of Westminster on behalf of the people. He's a former director of public prosecutions who will be able to run a government in a more competent way and in a more straight way than the mess we've had. And that's what he should double down on. There we go. Advice to the two political leaders at the moment. The only thing I'd just say is, you know, Here's us saying populism has had its day. The mainstream is reasserting itself, looking at, you know, Germany or election of Biden or Australia or Poland and saying, you know, sensible politics is reasserting itself. But if you look more closely at America, what's been happening more recently, actually Donald Trump, despite being caught again, he's ahead of Joe Biden He in the polls. He's a guy who is trying to tap into all of those extremes of QAnon and anti-vax and trying to say that he's the person who will represent that against the mainstream and he could be the next president of the United States and it's a deeply worrying prospect but I don't think populism is dead yet. No but uh, there were some encouraging state results for the Democrats so we'll return at some point to American politics because it's pretty exciting at the moment. But in the meantime, let us turn to our listener questions. Thanks for all the comments and suggestions you've been sending in. Keep sending in your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. So we've had one of our questions about political or economic definitions, a question from Richard. And he asks, love the podcast. Can you please explain what people mean by the Treasury orthodoxy? Well, I am looking at the Treasury orthodox, aren't I, Mr. Ed Balls? You are. I wear that badge with pride. If you go back to the 1930s, when people used the phrase Treasury orthodoxy, they tended to mean a desire to always cut public spending to have a smaller state. And that word is sometimes still used these days. But to be honest, it doesn't really add up. Because if you think of the last 30 years, the Treasury has supported increasing public spending with Gordon Brown, cutting public spending with George Osborne, cutting capital gains tax with Gordon Brown, increasing capital gains tax with George Osborne. I think the Treasury responds to 
the manifesto and the leadership of the Chancellor of its day. So I don't think that is the Treasury orthodoxy anymore. I think it's very out of date to think the Treasury always wants a smaller state. But what is Treasury orthodoxy these days, as exposed last autumn by Liz Truss, is an independent central bank, clear fiscal rules, independent audit of the public finances through the Office of Budget Responsibility, which you introduced, making sure that you always announce things properly on budget day, transparency and accountability. She tried to ditch all of that. She failed and Treasury orthodoxy was restored and it's now cross-party. Whether it's Jeremy Hunt or Rachel Reeves in the Treasury, we will have an independent central bank, clear fiscal rules and the OBR doing its job. Treasury orthodoxy established, I think, by us in the last 30 years, is now in the ascendancy. Treasury orthodoxy rules okay. Right, and our next question comes from Gary. If Nigel Farage was to try and become Conservative Party leader after the inevitable drubbing in the next general election, would you consider trying to get a safe seat, assuming such a thing still exists, and stand against him? If not, why not? Well, A, I'm enjoying my life quite a lot at the moment, Gary. So I'm not sure I want to plunge back into the House of Commons of British politics, particularly in the environment in which Nigel Farage has become leader of the Conservative Party. But there's a very good, very specific reason why even if I wanted to give up my frappuccino here in Shoreditch and go back to Westminster, I would struggle because under the Tory rules, it's the Tory party leader who decides who is eligible to be a Conservative Party candidate. You still have to get yourself chosen by the local Tory party in a particular seat, but the what's called the list, the, which is the list of all the people who could be Tory MPs, that is written by, directed by, controlled by the leader. And I don't think Nigel Farage is going to let George Osborne come in for what there probably wouldn't be many safe seats left in this environment, would come in for a Tory safe seat. And let's be honest, George, you've got enough jobs already. You don't need another one. I mean, it's hard enough, actually, getting you to do the meetings for our podcast, let alone trying to be a parliamentarian as well. I think no to that one. Finally, uh, a question from Johnny. (laughs) This is another good one. Is Ed jealous that George is on the Companion of Honour role? Has George CH had any fun gatherings with other companions? And whom would he like to see take one of the now vacant slots in the King's New Year's honours list? Also, how does he feel being the baby of the companion? Am I jealous of this thing? What is it? Uh, well, you're not, you're not in the inner circle of the establishment, Ed. You don't know about the companions of honour. I'm, I'm very, pr- very honoured and proud to be a companion of honour, which is an award from the late Queen. Uh, and it's a eclectic mix of people. It includes Paul McCartney, J.K. Rowling, Bridget Riley, the artist, and Norman Tebbit. So there you go, and George Osborne. And we did gather once uh, a couple of years ago in Hampton Court Palace. And it's, I guess, a recognition of service in a particular field. Uh, and I am quite chuffed to have it. Is this like the um, the lesser version of A Knight of the Garter? It's probably a lesser version of the Order of Merit for those who are being particularly right. finickety about these things. Garter, it's a garter, a garter. A garter is a garter. It goes around your, goes around your calf. Um, Do you get one as a companion of honour? <laughs> you just get a medal. Oh, right, okay. But the, uh, to be honest, you know, if you want a garter, we can always get you one. Well, Tony Blair can uh, offer up his, of course, because he is now a knight of the garter. KG, that's oh. what he has after his name. Oh. There's always been a tradition that former prime ministers mm. do after a period of time become Knights of the Garter. And before Tony Blair, there were only two Prime Ministers who weren't a Knight of the Garter, according to the reading I did. One was Harold Macmillan, because he turned it down. 
and one was Douglas Home because he was already a thistle. Term. Well, that's what Gordon Brown will accept. He he will mm-hmm. not become a knight of the gutter. But if you're Scottish, there's, a, there's an even grander, more elite thing, yeah. and that is the Order of the Thistle. Do you actually have to wear a thistle around well, your calf? I don't know. To be honest, I don't know. But it's, uh, but it's a great honour, and I'm honor, sure Gordon, I think the, we're all waiting for the moment when we hear, arise, Sir Gordon. Well, listen. Is you, it going to happen? I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, he's blocking. He's a he's a bed blocker for Cameron and well, didn't May Tony Blair have, and uh, Sir Boris and all the others that are going to come after. But didn't maybe Tony he's, Blair maybe he's just holding years. back the Tory tide, which I I know he would uh, be encouraged to do so. But the interesting thing is, John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron—they've all not gone into the House of Lords. Which tells you something about the House of Lords. But we mm. will. Perhaps come back to that on another occasion. If you were asked, would you go? I've said no in the past. I said no too. There you go. That's why you're just plain Mr. Edward Balls. And you're George Osborne, CH, with a garter. No, I told you, it's a medal, not a garter. A <laughs> See you next week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.